Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Robbie Allen. Until recently, Robbie was a group product manager at Intercom, the world's leading business conversation platform best known for its friendly, almost omnipresent live chat icon. At Intercom, Robbie was focused on product-led growth and responsible for onboarding and first-use experiences. To put that in perspective, that's a product portfolio worth over 100 million US dollars in annual recurring revenue. Prior to joining Intercom, Robbie led the mobile product team at SurveyMonkey, where his team doubled product usage and increased core user retention. Robbie was also part of the founding team of Carnival.io, a New Zealand and New York-based mobile marketing automation startup. There, he was responsible for all things products, including the go-to-market roadmaps for sales and marketing. Carnival was sold to sell through in 2015 for an undisclosed sum. Before leaving New Zealand for the USA, Robbie received the Prime Minister's Business Scholarship, where he then went on to earn an MBA from UC Berkeley in 2013. He also received the Outstanding Graduate Student Instructor Award during his time there. Robbie's writing on product management has been featured in Forbes, Fortune, Adweek, USA Today, and on the front page of Reddit. He's also generously shared his knowledge by speaking at Product Lead, Mind the Product, and Product School. And today, he's here to share that knowledge with me on Brave UX. Robbie, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Brendan. It's great to have you here, Robbie. And I always like to start off, as people know, on a serious note. And that serious note is that I understand that you learned to fly in recent years. And that's interesting because just the other week I was speaking to Benjamin Humphrey, who's the CEO of Dovetail, and he told me a joke about pilots. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is this? How do you know someone's a pilot? Presumably because they tell you. That is 100% correct. And to be fair, you didn't tell me, but I did spot it on your Twitter bio. Why flying? Um, so this was actually a, a client of ours at Carnival one time, um, uh, took us flying. And uh, I, you know, like a lot of people that had, had thought flying was interesting. If you had to have a superpower, that would you know, absolutely be my choice over invisibility or super strength or anything like that (laughs) and i was just blown away like i you know the experience of flying um down long island over jones beach super low in the middle of summer it was like so beautiful and we felt so free and uh i just didn't realize it was a thing that kind of normal people could do i assumed it was either very expensive or very you know difficult or esoteric and Mm -hmm. like it's neither particularly cheap nor particularly easy um but as a um as a sort of a skills acquisition thing, like I really love learning new things. Um, mm. It's both a beautiful thing and, you know, to be able to do and, and unlocks a whole lot of stuff. Um, plus you, there's a lot of learning involved in it. And um, I just find that intrinsically fun. Mm. And it's interesting looking at your background and actually knowing you personally, learning is definitely something that you value and you've spent a lot of time doing. I mentioned your MBA there at UC Berkeley. Um, but I also remember that you graduated and went to work for McKinsey, uh, but you didn't stay in the consulting world. Instead, you made your way to Silicon Valley and into product. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'd love to say it 
it was a, um, a thoroughly studied decision, um, but it's one of those things that makes a lot of sense <laughs> in, in retrospect. But at the time, I was just kind of following my nose. Um, I really enjoyed um, management consulting. I liked the idea of um, working with kind of large businesses on some of their hardest problems. And I loved working with kind of some really interesting and extremely smart colleagues. Um, but ultimately, I didn't like, you know, constantly being an, an advisor. There's only so much you can do. Um, if you're sort of from the outside and, you know, many times you'd see what we thought were great recommendations given to clients and they wouldn't kind of implement them. And, you know, I, hmm. I figured I'd just rather be on the other side of the table. I'd rather be the person in the chair making those decisions. And so the kind of arc of my career has been just, you know, closer and closer to actually being an operator. Um, and yeah. I found that really fulfilling. Um, product management itself uh, was again, a bit of luck. So it was actually a former McKinsey colleague who connected me with um, the other team at Zynga, didn't really know what product management was and didn't really think that a Facebook mm. game um, would be the thing for me. So I actually worked on Farmville, which was that Facebook game that was super popular, <laughs> you know, maybe five or six years ago with the lonely cow. And, you know, they totally had hacked newsfeed um, and got a lot of the traffic from that. Just didn't sort of see yeah. how that would be kind of relevant to me. I wasn't interested in that, but um what I was exposed to, you know, during my time there was just how um, uh, digital products is this beautiful blend of kind of creativity and you know, solving customer problems. Like there was this real sort of qualitative element to it. Um, but also you can measure everything that people do. And so they're highly, highly analytical. And um, it felt very similar in some ways to what I'd love most about the work at McKinsey, which was like kind of trying to understand a problem, get to the bottom of it. Um, and it's not just a spreadsheet. It's also about the qualitative, like, is this, is this fun? Does this work? Does this make sense? Why are people, you know, kind of doing this? Like here's three items that are frequently purchased, but what's the common denominator um, among mm -hmm. them? So really sort of similar problem solving thinking, um, but with just much more data, so much more information, we could really rapidly understand so much about how our customers were behaving to get a better picture of them. Um, and also mm -hmm. the ability to iterate so rapidly. Um, so, at McKinsey, you do a bunch of research over six or eight weeks, you come up with a strategy, you'd implement it over two years, and then either the stock price went up or it didn't. Like it was a very slow iteration cycle. Whereas at, um, you know, Zynga, we would, you know, you'd have some insight, you'd spend a day doing research, you'd put together a feature that maybe built in about a week or so, a couple of weeks, you'd ship it. And basically that morning, you know, in many cases, you'd know like, hey, I'm onto something. Um, or I'm not. Mm. And if you weren't onto something, at least you'd understand like where in the funnel people were falling off or have just a lot of information to kind of iterate. And so that whole idea of just like kind of coming out with hypotheses and testing and learning, um, that was always sort of fun um, about consulting was just writ large um, at a digital product company, whether that's, um, you know, B2B software, which is where I find myself now, um, mm -hmm. or a very large consumer game. Mm. You mentioned the analytical training that you had and the experiences at McKinsey and how you loved that side of that and you could bring that forward into the experience at Zynga, but there was more of an immediacy in um, seeing the results of the changes that you're able to affect. And that sounds like that would be quite addictive. You also touched on the qualitative and quantitative aspects of um, informing design or product decisions there. When you first started at Zynga, what way did, did you lean, if any, between the sort of qualitative um, uh, techniques and the quantitative techniques? Oh, um, like 100% quant. Um, I think that was mm. definitely um, a gap. But like Zynga was very, very analytical. And if you look at the company 
it was very good at taking existing games and managing them very well, kind of something that's already working, and then really kind of mm. optimizing that core loop. There's very few games that they were able to start themselves um, and be very successful. And so in the sort of the core creative game design, I don't think Zynga was strong. But in terms mm. of like managing an existing thing by the numbers, um, you know, they were world class and, you know, probably still are. And so, mm. you know, that's the sort of, that was a great sort of introduction um, uh, to, um, you know, kind of that world, being able to lean on my analytical skills. Uh, but mm-hmm. Zynga also made it very clear that there were certain item or there was this kind of element of creativity, which was hard to sort of see in numbers. So, for example, you know, certain virtual goods, if you had a bunch of items, whether it's, you know, this is sort of Farmville, so trees or sheep or dragons or, you know, whatever, certain ones would just sell more because just the art looked good. You know, there was this real sort of inherent mm-hmm. taste aspect to the whole thing. And, um, you know, over time you started to get good at sort of understanding your customer and having a sense. You start to build this sort of intuition of like, I think this will sell well or like this feels like this sort of other thing. And I think I've mm-hmm. been really fascinated over the last few years about like how you blend those things together um, mm. because I think the quant and the qual are often seen as sort of two different lenses um, where increasingly I actually think they're just sort of the same thing. It's actually all information. Mm. It's all data about our customers um, and it just comes in different formats. And so I, the, the sort of distinction, should one be quant or should one be qual, um, uh, I think is sort of the wrong question at this point. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a need and a role for for both, and in order to fully understand what that user experience is like and how to evolve it, I'm interested in um, speaking with you in more detail about Quant and Qual um, further on in the conversation. But before we do that and we move off Zynga, I understand that your claim to fame there was you came up with virtual unicorns. Tell me about that. Yeah, the unicorns feature. So that was really fun. We sold uh, half a million dollars of imaginary virtual unicorns in um, a couple of weeks. And the feature sounds super creative. There was like the fire pegacorn and, and the rainbow pony pegacorn and, and kind of unicorns and all this sort of stuff. A pegacorn is a, a, a the combination of a pegasus and a unicorn, which I don't think I knew until I worked at Zynga. Um, but the clue is in the title. Um, so it seems really fun, really whimsical. It's actually a microeconomics experiment at its core. Um, so where mm. that came from is I was just idly curious about pricing um, elasticity um, at uh, at one point. So pricing elasticity basically is the trade-off between, um, you know, when you change a price, what's the relative percentage change in, um, you know, kind of purchase volume, um, relative mm. percentage change in price. Uh, because the mm-hmm. way that you maximize revenue is you want those two things to be equal so you know intuitively it's like if you if something's really price sensitive you can decrease the price just a little bit and maybe double sales you know which obviously is like a really good result Mm. um or in some cases if you know your customers are pretty price inelastic you can increase you know maybe double the price and only you know 10 percent fewer people you know purchase it and so you know overall you've kind of made more revenue and so i was really curious about this um at Zynga and so was just trying to look at like what does the price elasticity look like for these sort of virtual goods and what we saw is um, very high levels of price elasticity at low prices so that means Mm -hmm. that as you go from like a dollar to a dollar ten to you know dollar twenty for a virtual good you see like really significant drop off in the number of people that are buying it Um, but after about four or five dollars 
um, extremely price inelastic. And so, you know, same number of people, of, of people roughly speaking, would buy something for five bucks as would for 10 bucks. Um, and so the, to sort of cut to the chase, the sort of the right answer there is to have a lot of, you know, really cheap items. So you'll sell like a huge amount of them um, at like a very low price. Um, and a number of very expensive items because, you know, um, you bleed a lot of people off, um, you know, increasing from sort of $1 to $5. But if you're pricing at five, you might as well mm-hmm. price it at 10 or 20. Um, and at the mm-hmm. time, all of our items were sort of priced in the middle at like two or $3, which is like the worst price basically. And so <laughs> unicorns were essentially a, um, a largely a copy of the dragons feature, but just with a new sort of set of pricing laid on top to really understand like, Hey, does this theory hold true? Like if we kind of price it cheaper and, um, much higher, can we drive more revenue? And I think we got about 30%, like a third more revenue out of a kind of a similar feature just by sort of mm-hmm. optimizing the price in that way. Um, you know, and so the sort of bringing the, while it was fundamentally um, a microeconomics um, experiment, there were actually some really fun kind of creative aspects because certain items, um, you know, the, uh, what was one, the robot, um, unicorn i think like was priced really high but because the art was kind of weird and it didn't really sort of resonate with customers we actually didn't sell that many of them so you know like the there was some aspect in mm. which the kind of the 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 actual just the art and the coolness of these items was this kind of noise that was put across the um you know sort of core economic experiment they weren't quite the same um things but yeah overall it was um it was a pretty good um a pretty fun little experiment Mm. And what what was it like? How did it feel when you realized that you were able to adjust the price and, and achieve, I think you mentioned a 30% increase in, in sales or revenue? Like what was that moment like? That's a good one to focus on. Um, it was, uh, to this day, I still find this, right? Like when you actually get the data back and it works, I'm always a little bit amazed. You know, like it, it's sort of, you have so many conversations about this and you draw the chart and rah, rah, rah. But there's just something about like, being able to um, take a chart or an insight or whatever and make a change and see that actually reflected in human behavior, the sort of incredible hmm. sense of like, wow, I actually understand this and we can actually move the levers um, of this business. Like I, I, I still think it's a fairly um, intoxicating kind of experience, even, even shipping features today. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can understand how that, how that might be. You know, there are a lot of smart people working in product and you know what you've just talked about clearly comes from your training in finance and economics and you've applied that to you know a, a very a large scale uh, game in this case in order to see what works and what doesn't and you mentioned that it was quite intoxicating but as i said when i when i first started that question there's a lot of smart people working in product and that can often mean that there are a few egos at play how do you manage an environment like Zynga, like other product companies where you've been in, where there are a lot of well-paid and highly intelligent people? Yeah. So I think um, ego and product management is a really interesting one because increasingly it's a role that's sort of smart, capable, ambitious people get attracted Mm. to. Um, But it's, also a role that has a lot of influence without authority. You know, if you're an individual contributor PM, you don't have a team, um, you know, you need to have um, your engineering team, your designer, your researcher, your um, 
analyst and even when i say you're not actually really yours in any sense your, your partners mm-hmm. um they've got to kind of believe and trust you um you know you don't have that kind of um implicit stick of like do this or you are fired that kind of typifies a command and control structure for like a traditional organization um these mm-hmm. people can go to their bosses and say you're not doing a good job um and that's even more true with like your kind of more cross-functional partners marketing sales you know analytics all that sort of stuff um so it's a role in which I think it's easy to make mistakes. And like I know certainly early on in my career, um, and this is sort of, you know, typified of kind of MBAs and ex-consultants and stuff. And I think I was no um, exception where, you know, I'd sort of try and win people over through like pure force of argument. Like that doesn't make sense. Like always appealing to um, rationality. Um, and in many cases coming mm-hmm. down really quickly on people um, in meetings. And it just didn't work very well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there's a whole set of skills of influencing that are really important to learn um in product and you know one of the ways i think about it now is um you know if you actually this is something that our um ceo at intercom karen peacock said a lot like if you want to go far go alone no if you want to go fast go alone but if you want to go far go together which has got a kind of reader's digesty feel to it but i think um you know getting the whole organization on board with something um is uh is extremely like it's really really important and if there's a choice between just like do it yourself and kind of slide it through don't talk to the analytics team do the analytics yourself sneak in there um you know what inevitably happens is people don't just don't really believe the results and it's really hard to get support and so so much of your role as a product manager is like building understanding and consensus. And sometimes the way to do that is do what you think is the wrong thing. Product management really is a influence without authority type role. Um, and that really mm. takes some getting used to. So, you know, it's not your designer, it's not your engineering manager, your engineers, these people are your peers. And certainly you play a leadership role on the team, but it really is that sort of classic style of servant leadership where you need to earn the trust of people because you don't kind of carry that stick of, you know, do what I say or you'll get fired that ultimately underpins mm. your sort of a traditional chain of command. And so it really requires a lot more leadership and a lot more humility and a lot more time and, and, and storytelling. And I was really lucky at, at sort of one point in my career to be taken aside by um, one of the leaders and, and, you know, who sort of sat me down and said, look, you know, you're, you're smart, you know what you're doing, but you know, you come across too forcefully and, and, you know, you're not really building, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the trust and support of people um, around you. And, you know, looking back at that time, like I would really rely on, well, this seems like the right thing to do and would really kind of push for that and would try and win every sort of single argument um, because it was sort of Mm -hmm. good for the company or right for the company um, or, you know, in some cases just right for me. And I think what I've learned and, you know, what I coach and you know, the product managers that, that I worked with, work with is that um, it's really, really important to build the trust and support of your engineering and design partners, of UX, of analytics, of marketing, of sales, of all those folks. And what that means is you won't always do exactly what you think the sort of right answer is. Right. I think a classic early product manager mistake is to say, well, this is my product and sort of the, this reflects me and, and anything we do that I don't love is wrong. Like ultimately it's a, a team exercise and it's your job to influence and you know build the team. And that may mean you know doing things that you may not necessarily agree with all the time. And you're far better to disagree and commit and learn quickly. And 
I know I can think of many instances when I've shipped stuff that I didn't necessarily sort of if I were you know solely in charge um, I don't think I would have done but it was really important um, because someone on our team was passionate or a partner was passionate or there was some sort of other reason that this was um, really important that we do that and you know sometimes um, it doesn't work as I expected and um, you know like I didn't think it would work and it doesn't work and so you know, you don't quite get the I told you so, but, um, you know, what we have done at that point is we've built the kind of understanding and support. Like, you know, I had looked at data and, you know, I talked to customers and believed something was true, but other people, you know, weren't happy with that evidence. And so it was important that we, mm. you know, to get everyone aligned, we go and build something. Um, and other times, you know, I've been adamant something wouldn't work and it totally worked really well. And, you know, I've been able to update my, you know, kind of view of the world and say, wow, like, I'm really pleased we did that because, you know, if it's just my call, we totally wouldn't have. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, bringing that sense of humility is really important. And I think to an understanding that, um, you know, a team that's highly aligned and shipping frequently, even if they ship the wrong things, you know, maybe as much as half the time, will actually learn very quickly. And I think what I've certainly mm. seen is organizations that were sort of, um, you know, that sales and product didn't agree or kind of marketing had a different view and were sort of selling something different to what was being built. Um, you know, you're much better being highly aligned and, you know, exploring a few different directions, learning quickly and course correcting than you are spending like a huge amount of time, you know, trying to make sure that you make the right decision for everything that you ship. Like the idea of, you know, building, shipping, learning is really, really important. So how do you give away uh, what sounds like some of the control over what ships and what doesn't, but still maintain as the product manager, the overall direction uh, that's going to work for both the business and the user? Well, I think as product manager, you actually never control what's being shipped. Like you don't design it, you're not going to build it. And so ultimately you need to convince other people to design the product and build the product. And so, I think that the, that's the sort of fundamental misunderstanding. This like, oh, you know, you're the CEO of the product. Everyone has to do what you <laughs> say. Um, like that was never true to begin with. Um, and so really it's like- Where did that team, come from? Um, I, yeah, I don't know exactly where it came from. And I think sort of some aspects of it are really kind of important in the sense of, you know, thinking kind of holistically about the product mm -hmm. and being able to, you know, really take extreme ownership. Um, of everything that's happening and slot into places, um, you know, where you're needed. And in some senses, that's kind of exactly what a CEO does, right? Like I think when we think mm. CEO of the product, we think that kind of, you know, gross old version of kind of large command and control companies with the sort of private jets and executive bathrooms and sort of everyone cowering in fear. Whereas I think if you think <laughs> of kind of modern CEOs that I've worked with, like they really do, you know, the way that they work with their executives, mm. they'll do things that maybe, you know, wouldn't be their core, but they absolutely support their executives and understand that, you know, they've got to give them the freedom to run their organizations and, you know, they'll learn quickly if in fact they do things, um, you know, that maybe don't pan out. Um, so mm. I think it's sort of rooted in like the wrong idea of what a CEO does or, or you know, how in fact, you know, really good CEOs do lead. Um, and you know, then that just gets sort of transferred to, to product. What's a more helpful or, or contemporary way of looking at the role of product manager or a metaphor to think about what you can do to be effective in that role? Yeah. Um, I think it's that you're, it's almost more like, uh, I wish I had, 
had a nice off-the-shelf metaphor. The thing I think about <laughs> is like when you're organizing um, a group of your friends to go on holiday, like that's kind of the metaphor, right? Like you have a sense mm-hmm. of it'd be fun to go, you know, somewhere beachy on holiday, you know, over the um, Easter break or, you know, over New Year's Day or something. And you've got some kind of a vision. And so yeah. uh, it's, it's really helpful and really important to have a vision of like, hey, I'm thinking we'll be like, it'll be pretty chill. Um, you know, we might have a couple of nights of partying, but mostly it's going to be really relaxing and restorative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going to get a house that we sort of optimize for location to the beach. And maybe it's not quite as nice or it's a bit smaller. Like there's some sort of a vision that you're pitching to people, um, which can really help to sort of align, you know, someone kind of align everyone and, 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 you know, not have these very divergent, like, ah, let's go and, and, you know, have a crazy party trip or like, oh, like I, you know, I want to go and get work done or, oh, let's go with the kids or, you know, whatever it is, it's important to have some sort of a vision, but, you know, ultimately these people have to choose to sort of go with you and, and, um, Mm. you know, you are going to have things that's, you know, not quite what what you would have expected or something like that. But ultimately your job is to like facilitate these group of people, this group of people to a decision and you can have some influence, but ultimately, you know, everyone's got to sit down and say, yes, we agree with this and this is what we want to do. Um, and you're there in service of, you know, the larger group, you can make suggestions and pitches, but ultimately, um, if they want to do it or don't want to do it is up to them. And, you know, so I think that kind of model where you have to really, um, sort of, lead through kind of inspiration and vision and like, Hey, here's how I'm thinking about things. And here's why I think, you know, it might make sense for us to sort of organize events in this way. Or like, I think kind of cards would be fun for this reason or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and also realizing that you're not always going to be right. You know, like your perfect sort of, hmm. you know, artiste vision is not going to be realized. Um, and ultimately like the goal is a holiday that, um, you know, everyone enjoyed and not the realization of your sort of perfect vision. Hmm. You know, it sounds like a, a very difficult role in the sense that you don't have a lot of control. Uh, you've got to bring people along, as you said, for the journey, make it feel like they've decided to do things. And, and in reality, they probably will have decided to do a bunch of stuff, stuff on the product, but you ultimately don't control them. How does that play out in terms of the your well-being as, as you know, someone who's been in a senior product management Uh, role or roles before like how do you look after yourself and make sure that you're able to articulate that vision and bring the energy that you need to in order to bring the product and the team to greater success i think energies um it is a great way to frame it like energy from a pm is really important um and i've often seen this from just the day-to-day of the scrum team coming in being excited and you know being able to remind the team that okay you know we're not just making bricks we're contributing to building um, a cathedral here and I think that mm. um, like I'm you know definitely down that chain of um, have like I have a meditation practice and I know that you know if I can get mm. out and exercise um, at least four days a week like I'm kind of much better and much happier um, and also that I think also it was a realization for me that like you know a little bit like we talked about previously I don't actually control everything and so when I sort of put mm. on myself I have to make these people do this thing I certainly found that very stressful um, versus you know a reframing of that that i've taken recently is look i'm going to show up and, and really just do my best um, and i'm going to kind of kind of help nudge people in you know in the right direction as much as possible and as long as we go broadly in the right direction and we may do some things that i didn't agree with or my kind of boss i'm, I'm going to be able to get my boss um, on board with something that's actually really really important um that's mm-hmm. okay you know like as long as we're just sort of like we're we're continually learning and as long as we're aligning 
and uh, as long as we're moving forward, um, that's actually progress, not this kind of like, you know, this product is my baby and represents myself and I need to sort of actualize myself through it. Like that's the stuff that gets you in trouble, I think. So, you know, it's a combination of just the basic sort of, um, you know, knowing the stuff that sort of helps you. Um, mm. And also I think framing what it is that you're doing as like, yeah, this is, you're in the middle of the way the sausage gets made and it's a bunch of trade-offs and, you know, um, and there was a New Zealand politician that you know, talked about politics as the art of the possible. And I think it's the same thing mm-hmm. for, you know, organizations. Like I've certainly had things that I've, you know, pitched for many months and, you know, won no support and, and, and you know, then slowly got maybe a little proof of concept. And then eventually these things were kind of built out into, you know, whole product lines in some cases. Um, but it just took a lot of like slowly persuading, convincing, um, and just being willing to kind of offer this idea and, you know, continually refine how I pitch this because, you know, ultimately if someone doesn't understand something that's on me as the communicator, um, it, you know, it's not mm. for me to say, well, they're dumb or why don't they get it? Like, that's not helpful. Like if I want someone to understand something, um, you know, that's on me to find new ways to communicate that. Yeah, that's actually a really insightful point, And it's something that if you're listening to this episode, you should, should really take away. I think you get a lot of value out of applying that into your own life if you're not already. Now, Robbie, you've worked at a, several large, well-known product organizations. You mentioned Zynga. I mentioned in your introduction, SurveyMonkey and Intercom. You also have worked in New Zealand uh, and in the US. So you've seen a bunch of different cultures and ways of doing things. Thinking about those experiences, what does a world-class product organization look like? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I think what are the characteristics of a world-class product organization? I think highly aligned is certainly, um, you know, one characteristic. So I've worked at organizations where there was, this, you know, very much decentralized, like, you know, you own this piece of the product, you figure out the strategy and people would be going in a million different sort of directions and sort of optimizing for their own metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think hmm. really good product leadership stand, you sort of steps up and, you know, really good company leadership will have like quite a clear strategy. And not a strategy in the sense of our strategy is to grow margins, but it really seems like a real story. Like I think of kind of strategy as a term that can be thrown around a lot, but ultimately it's like a, a story about how you're going to achieve what it is you think you're going to do, right? Amazon's strategy being to have like a really wide range of um, items available and make them, you know, get to our customers really quickly. And so, and, and just have like really great customer experiences throughout and always take the view that, hey, if the customer's upset, that's their their fault for not messaging correctly or not setting expectations or whatever else. And that was sort of, that's like the qualitative story. Now there's other ways you could have done that. You could have had like a one-on-one concierge kind of system or, Hey, we're going to create great margins by like kind of selling lots of items at really high prices, you know, through, because they're hard to find items. You know, there's tons of different stories you can imagine, Mm -hmm. but that was uniquely Amazon's. And, you know, I think as a company, you want to make sure your company has that and certainly a product organization needs to have that of like, how is it that we are going to create value? Like, what do we do for customers truly? Um, mm. Paired to that, I think, is a um, an understanding at the level of the job that you do. And so not like, you know, we build an SMS system, um, but, you know, we help direct-to-consumer retailers to communicate with their customers. Like, that's the job that we're doing. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. we're agnostic about whether it's SMS or it's push notifications or it's email or carrier pigeon or whatever. But if you sort of understand the job, then you're able to understand, you know, different parts um, around the problem and, you know, what you really compete with. That job understanding, I found, is a really 
really, really rich one for organizations to have. And it's really important that a world-class product team has a sense of you know what problem they're solving for customers and what the job they're doing is. Um, I think a real focus on problems, um, like I know we've hmm. sort of chatted about this before, um, but focusing on the customer problem, like like what is it that someone's trying to do? What's the progress they're trying to make in their lives rather than being sort of feature focused, like, you know, we need to build notifications. Um, <laughs> ultimately, I think one of the you know, biggest sources of value you can create as a PM is just really clearly defining the problem, you know, that you want to work on um, and, you know, being able to identify that, you know, requires an understanding of your customer, um, a really deep understanding of your customer and likely requires more research. Um, so a kind of real problem focus, I think, is extremely important. Um, really strong connections with um, with stakeholders. And so, you know, a sense of like the product is being really attached to the rest of the organization. Like often you'll hear sort of product throwing stuff over the wall to sales or maybe they're sort of the kind of pale that is just sort of constantly trying to organize sales requests, you know, together into one place. Like a really good understanding <laughs> and a partnership. And that's where the company strategy comes in to make sure that, you know, marketing, selling what products building and, you know, same thing with sales and everyone's aligned about like, hey, these are the customers we're really going after. And these are the ones we're sort of going after opportunistically. Um, what else? I think like a clear and really well understood process. And so I think having, a, and this ultimately helps for alignment within that triad of like product design and engineering to say that, you know, product mm -hmm. needs to step up and say like, these are the ways, you know, these are the stages that each project is going to go through. And I think being quite prescriptive about the stage, but um, quite open about the form that that takes. And so this is less a series of sort of templates to be filled out or spreadsheets or kind of forms and much more mm -hmm. like, hey, this is the, um, you know, so maybe validation, like, you know, every time we define a problem, we, we, we take some validation step and that could be look at a couple of support tickets. It could be, you know, three months of formative research and, you know, the form can really change, but each step qualitatively, mm. you, you've kind of undertaken that step of, you know, validating that the problem exists. Um, mm. Those are things that are, that, that are top of mind right now. Um, but I'm sure mm. there's much, much more as well that would kind of characterize a world-class product org. And those are some great things, I think, if people are looking for their next role in product to consider when they're interviewing and and to ask about and try and get a sense of as they move into their next role. Maybe you actually one thing, sorry, Brendan, just, to, hmm. just to, to, to add in here actually as well, I'm just thinking about what are the things which can go wrong and, and, and you know, you should look out for. Um, ultimately, <laughs> it's a focus on results, right? Like products about making something people want. And so a good product is one that, um, you know, people use, they use a lot and, um, you know, that grows. And so I think that, you know, your product org has to have a real focus on sort of top level results and not just like, hey, we shipped a lot of features, um, not just focused on output, but it's got to be, hey, look, we solve these problems for these customers and that drove revenue for our organization. Like I think really great product yeah. organizations have a, have a clear focus on that as well. Yeah, it sounds like that's, that's a mindset and it also plays out from the way that you've described that and the language people use to talk about and describe what it is that they do. I think that's fair. Robbie, you also, yeah, you also mentioned in, um, in what you were just describing there, that there are often uh, problems um, in product and that lends um, to this notion of prioritization and the product manager uh, seems to be the role where that responsibility falls on the most. I've heard you speak about this idea that in product that everything 
is on fire so it really becomes a question of what fire to let burn in your experience how have you approached that decision of what fires to let burn and what ones to try and put out I mean, I think this comes back to like just a really good understanding of your customer and like a really clear strategy. And so, um, you know, the fires that you can't let burn are those things that your customers come to you for. Because, you know, if you're a, a new product, likely there's lots of features that you don't have. And the whole way that products get started is because they're so much better in one area and, and they solve something that's such a pressing problem that customers are willing to kind of give up everything else. They're not sort of worried about the other things that you don't do uh, because you do that one or mm -hmm. two things really well. And generally it's the case that in products, only a couple of things that you do that make the difference. And there's lots of things that, you know, help or, you know, they sort of need to, but they don't really make um, a large difference. And so I think the core of prioritization is like a really clear understanding of like what actually matters here. You know, does the beauty of uh, and the kind of, you know, how visually arresting the site is, does that matter? And in what parts? Um, you know, or is it like, look, we can get a B there. Obviously, it's got a, a meter bar, but, you know, we don't get extra points for winning. The site speed, <laughs> does it really, really matter? Or is it something we've just got to be, like, not bad on? You know, some product site speed mm. super important. Others, it's like, yeah, it shouldn't be super laggy, but, like, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to win by kind of exceeding on those dimensions. And so if you've got a really good understanding of those things, then I think the prioritization starts to become a little bit simpler. And, mm -hmm. you know, to, to our discussion earlier, you mentioned that, um, you know, the PMs often responsible for prioritizing. Um, product managers don't, like it's not a thing you go and train for. And so product mm -hmm. managers don't inherently <laughs> have any, you know, more skill at this necessarily um, or, or sort of insight than anyone else does. And so I'd almost think of them more as like the, the chairman of the board or they're just the sort of chair of this meeting that could include a pretty wide range of stakeholders, all of whom need to be bought into the way the prioritization happens. And so if you know PMs find themselves sort of putting their business card on the table and going, well, we're going to do X because I'm the PM and, and you know, I say that it's my job to decide that. Um, a little bit like if, you know, if you hear design saying, well, you know, I want it to be purple because I'm the designer and I get to choose that. Like something's gone pretty wrong. Um, really what PM should be doing is kind of working with all these different stakeholders and sort of ideally everyone should agree or at least pretty much understand. They may not completely agree, um, but broadly they can get behind, like I understand what we're prioritizing and why. Um, and I think also, you know, being willing to hold it lightly because what's really mm. important is, I think, is the sort of top two or three things that you're focused on that you need to get right and focusing on those. Um, uh, and it's really important that, that, you, that, that you do those three things um, and that you don't do something that's not on that list. But within that list, mm. um, you know, like should the, something be the second priority or the first priority? Like I don't think anyone really knows. And so, you know, being willing to hold that lightly and go, yeah, you know what? Like this is an important thing. I think we should do it. Um, but sales really, really want it right now. And so we're going to bring that up the roadmap, um, you know, a little bit. Um, to sort of make them happy um, and, and build goodwill. Like that's exactly what PM should be doing. Um, and that's really mm. a really positive mm. step or like design's really passionate about this and they've kind of had a bit of a tough quarter. So we'll just sort of bump this project up. Um, sort of reorganizing within that like circle of things that, you know, all of which are probably, you know, pretty good to do um, is totally fine. But the job really is making sure that stuff doesn't creep on that actually isn't important or isn't going to take us um, in the direction and build the product that we want to and you know help you know, better solve the customer problems that we've decided we're going after. Um, 
So yeah, that's yeah. how I think about prioritization. I think it's more about the story. Um, you know, more than it is, I'm actually a, a, a big, whatever the opposite of a proponent is um, of these kind of like impact and confidence and way to short job first, you know, kind of um, prioritization frameworks. Because it, it, what you always find is that the sort of potential impact of a feature, you're always just guessing at or making up. And, 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 and so, you know, this is rated as a seven versus a six. Um, you, you know, like that's a very sort of squishy step in that whole process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, qualitatively having an area in which like, hey, it's really important. Like, you know, people are going to choose our product because it's the fastest. And so, you know, this project may or may not work, but like ultimately it's working towards site speed. And so we know if we do enough of these, we'll be doing good things versus doing a, mm -hmm. you know, like a redesign of the site, which like looking at the day doesn't matter how pretty the site is. And um, if it's not quick, we're like, we're not going to win. And we can have a really ugly site and people will still use it if it's quick, you know? So yeah. that qualitative understanding is more important than a kind of um, some sort of made up calculation of, of, of what we think the impact of a particular project might have. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you really have to know what those things are that are going to make the products successful. Those core things are hold those front of mind and also be comfortable. You've mentioned this a couple of times now and this sort of notion of trade-off be comfortable with trading things off, you know, sometimes for softer reasons, you know, the good of the team as opposed to what you, you may want as the product manager. Yeah. And I think the key point, part there is like trading off within the kind of circle of acceptable, mm. you know, so like there's yeah. 50 ideas and all of them are probably good on some level, but there's five that are really important within that five, you know, like the order can be kind of whatever. Um, but it's, it's really important, that, you know, that you don't go doing other stuff you know, within that. Got it. Um, so Got realize it. that often locally, you know, a few equally important things, um, you know, and you probably won't know the answer anyway. And so let's just sort of try mm. and, and, and kind of come to some agreement around that. But it's super important that you don't get distracted. Mm. Yeah, you just can't know that's something that people are generally not that comfortable with. So sometimes you just have to try. Yeah. Well, Robbie, exactly. you're a bit of an expert on uh, product management for onboarding experiences. That's been a large part of your role at Intercom. You've written a lot about this and given several talks about this as well. Just for the people listening, in case there's any ambiguity about this, what is product onboarding? So product onboarding I think of as, you know, taking someone that's come to your website and, and, and it's clicked try. Um, they're, especially in my world, B2B SaaS, um, like, probably got some sort of a problem that your product can solve because it would be a pretty um, twist is the wrong word, but like it would be unusual for someone to just be sort of trying out software as a service products, you know, that are aimed at businesses just for fun. Like generally they kind of, if they walk on the lot, they have a problem that you can solve. Um, and so taking that person all the way from um, someone who's interested in the promises of your website to someone that's actually experiencing the value of the product on, on your website. And so that's, you know, someone that sort of, fully using your product to the best of its um, abilities for the problems that the, that the customer has. Um, so it's not just, you know, of, of that a, a subcomponent um, is the first use experience, which is maybe the first one or two mm -hmm. sessions. Um, but mm -hmm. like, like I think of onboarding as taking someone from, yeah, the promises of the website to really getting the most they can for the problems they have out of your product. Yeah. And there are, there are thousands, if not more products, particularly in B2B SaaS out there at the moment. What separates those that have a great onboarding experience from ones that have an average one? So I think the secret to like a really good onboarding experience is just understanding what customers want at that point. Um, 
And in many cases, it's about helping the customer either experience the value of the product really quickly, um, or it's about helping them sort of understand what that might be. Um, and so the difference there is that like for consumer products like Pinterest or Facebook, um, you know, rather than sort of telling people a lot about how it can help, like the best way to experience Facebook is just sort of sign up, add a few people and you'll get it pretty quickly. Stuff will show up in your newsfeed, you'll get messages, like you'll understand the value and you'll kind of know if it's for you or not. You'll get that magic moment of like interacting with friends. Um, mm. One of the unique things about kind of B2B products is that they're often pretty complicated. And so the, there may be like a large sort of setup process or some um, quite complicated uh, installation process. Um, I like to think of the Airbnb host experience as a really good kind of relatable example of this. So, you know, mm. if you wanted to host your space on Airbnb, there's actually a lot you've got to do. It's not like we can go, oh, cool. Mm. It's just, uh, we'll get someone in to sort of sleep in your house tonight. Like that'll be cool. Like, well, you know, we can't do that. It's not possible. And so, you know, what, a really good Airbnb host onboarding has to have is, is be able to help someone understand, you know, and make it really real. Here's the benefit um, or ha- help them see how they could realize that benefit of like kind of monetizing an empty space in their um, house and help them see how they could overcome all those kind of fears and, you know, things that are holding them back. Like, well, is it going to be safe? And what if, you know, do I get to vet who comes through this process? All that. And so like a really good first use experience for, um, Airbnb host would sort of help someone really quickly understand like here's how much money you could make with your space and here's how easy it's going to be to manage it and you know whatever other kind of the you know top five questions someone has when they kind of click that button like a good um, onboarding experience there is going to really ask kind of convince someone um, that this experience w- will actually you know do what it promises and so therefore they're willing to do all the work of like wrangling with a calendar and writing a blurb and um, you know, uploading the photos and sort of, you know, having a back and forth chat with randoms. Um, it's about building that kind of conviction, um, which usually is about mm-hmm. sort of helping show the product in, in really specific ways and make it real for those people. So that makes a lot of sense. You've spoken about, and we read a lot about in product, this notion that it's important to understand what the customer is trying to achieve, you know, what their problems are. And, you know, there's really important to do that during the onboarding experience in order to to deliver value during that critical moment. But let's get really practical. How, as the product manager, do you go about trying to understand what those problems are? How do you frame this? How do you put it in terms that's meaningful and actionable for the team in order to try things out and deliver on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the first thing to understand is that the new user experience and um, and you know the problems we solve for a, a new user may be quite different to um, you know the the actual kind of core problem that's being solved. So if we go back to the um, Airbnb experience, like the job to be done there is probably like when I've got a spare space in the house, I want to sort of easily and safely, um, you know, kind of make money um, out of that space. And that's probably the job to be done Mm -hmm. or I want to supplement my income, something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas by contrast, when you're shopping for something like um, Airbnb, maybe a range of other sort of questions you might have where it's like, oh, um, you know, I want, I need to, validate with my partner that it's okay that we do this and so i have to sort of essentially pitch to them and get their agreement to do this and i want to know what happens if something goes wrong and there's always kind of like concerns and fears and anxieties and things like that and the first thing is that like the needs of a sort of first-time user are often quite different and unique to someone that's already using the product and so it it may just Mm -hmm. not be um you know explaining what it does when you're using it day to day but there may be a range of really sort of set up specific kind of needs and 
you know, the classic one for B2B and this being like, you know, often if you're thinking about adopting a new product, someone may investigate it and they'll sort of, you know, pitch it to maybe a decision committee um, or then like make a decision, then negotiate a contract and only then go and implement, um, you know, the product. And so your onboarding needs to help people get through that like decision-making process. Like here's, here's a little calculator to help you understand how much, you know, value you could get with this product or, you know, here's how it would look on your website or whatever it would be, you know, stuff that isn't sort of necessarily just about like, kind of let's set up our product right now and get going but actually is helping mm. with the problems in that like actual buying process um a really so part- how do you frame those problems so how do you go about uh, defining those i mean it's it's somewhat easy to look at an existing product and kind of tease those out but when you're in the trenches building the product you know how do you actually get from what they what they are assumed to be to actually what they are and and iterate on top of those yeah, so it's really critical, you know, not to sort of uh, guess um, at this point and talking mm-hmm. to customers is absolutely critical here. Um, mm-hmm. The process I really like for this is the switch script interview, which is, um, you know, I think well characterized by Bob Moister and the Rewired group, who are sort of some of the early proponents mm-hmm. of jobs to be done. And what a switch script interview will do is it kind of takes um, a customer, often like someone that's sort of newly signed up, and will really dig deeply into like, well, you know, when did you first think about kind of finding a solution to this? And then what did you do? How did you go about kind of casting around um, for mm. you know, particular alternatives? And what was the progress in your life that you were trying to make? You know, this idea that people don't want to drill, they want holes in their wall or whatever it is, and that the drill is a thing they may choose to solve that particular problem. Um, mm. But really getting into the nitty gritty of that process. And, you know, if you think about the B2B buying process, it might be, well, you know, it's actually often usually there's some sort of failure within the company or some big event, someone missed a quarter and they're like, hey, we've really got to improve here. And then that, you know, <laughs> set in motion some sort of process. And so sort of understanding that helps you align your marketing, helps align your product, like all these sorts of things. When you understand, like, what is it that someone comes to you for and what's the progress they're looking to make? What's the job to be done um, mm-hmm. when they're buying? And also what are the various steps, you know, like who are all the different people involved in the process? And you know, what information do they want at each stage? Because I think that's the sort of classic mistake of, um, you know, many kind of complex product lead companies will be like, you know, when you click that start trial button or something like that, they'll have you like set up the actual product. Um, and in many cases, what people hmm. want is something more akin to a demo than actually sort of hmm. you know, setting up the product. I mean, I guess in some ways a trial always is a demo. It's just that, you know, someone setting up the product themselves may not be the most effective way to demo at that point. It may be that they want sort of a slightly, you know, kind of more detailed explanation or something they can play with a little bit, you know, more than the marketing side, but they don't actually want to necessarily like get started. And I think that's what, if you look at a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, kind of onboarding flows, it's almost like that team is assuming that the, that the, that person has already made a purchase decision. And so, you know, they'll mm-hmm. often have like lots of API keys to install or just hard, difficult work that doesn't actually prove value upfront. And that's really the wrong mm-hmm. way to think about it. Like when someone, you know, m- modern companies are all about a light marketing site and trying to get you into the product as soon as possible. And what that means is that, that that person hasn't decided to buy. At that point, they're just a prospect. They're interested. And so your goal is to really, really easily and quickly help make the progress that your product could help that person make in their lives feel as real as possible with as little work as possible. Um, and only now there's a great takeaway. There is a great takeaway for people listening. That's a huge point. 
Yeah, I think that's a really big one. Um, and I think of all the things in onboarding, like really trying to help make, um, you know, that progress real. And you can, you know, an easy order for yourself is like at every stage, like does this make me more confident that your product will do the thing that was on your marketing website, you know? Mm. Um, mm. And if it doesn't, like, do you really need that step? Because early on people haven't invested a whole lot, right? Like maybe the first page is like, you know, create an account. Like, do you, why do you really need to create an account? Can we not do this stuff logged out? Um, mm. and, and it doesn't need to be a lot. It could be sort of three or four tasks to help you sort of make some decisions about how you might configure this thing and help you, you know, kind of get your mindset in the fact of, Oh, this product could really help me. This is what I want. And maybe then it's like, you know, Hey, do you want to save your progress? Let's create an account. And so you can come back to this, or maybe you can show it to someone else. If you know, you know, there's another mm-hmm. you know, person involved in the buying process, but just really thinking hard about like, how would I show someone, um, you know, that, that, that this is going to work for them with as little effort as possible on, on their part, you know, in the early days, it certainly should be doing that for the first sort of five minutes of the experience, let's say. Yeah. I mean, this, this sounds like you need to have a really strong qualitative and rich insight into what the jobs to be done are of the, the customer or the users that you're trying to onboard, but how do you quantify, you know, once you've understood that or you believe you've understood that and you put it out there into the product, how do you quantify whether or not you've been successful in, in those assumptions that you're now testing? Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, ultimately it's like, is it driving more revenue? You know, is, is mm. you know, if you're a commercial product is fundamentally the bottom line. Um, sometimes you'll be working on intermediate steps to that. So if you're doing something that involves mm. churn or retention, it's almost impossible to sort of measure that. It's just very, very hard and you're looking for very small changes. And so mm-hmm. the way I'd think about that is basically working through that kind of backwards through that chain of logic, which is to say like, if we were trying to onboarding, if we're trying to onboard someone, where in the process were we focused? Like maybe it was getting more people who are, you know, have met our definition of activate, of activated to then convert. And so like that's the little mm. number you'd be looking at. Or maybe it's what you're trying to do is get more people activated and so you're focused on that. Um, when you're evaluating this stuff, it's really important to make sure that the problem that you're solving is pretty well tied to the you know, metrics that you're measuring. So for example, let's say you're working on, you know, the first use experience and what you found is that there were certain people in the, I don't know, um, uh, e-commerce industry really struggled to see how mm-hmm. your product could be relevant to them. Um, a bad way to measure that and, and you know, your goal was sort of activation. Like they, those people were just bouncing. They weren't even kind of activating. Um, mm-hmm. A bad way to measure that would say like, you know, did the overall activation rate go up? Um, the reason that's bad is that there's lots of things that could affect the activation rate and who you were targeting was really specifically e-commerce companies. And so what you want to do is, is sort of look at like, okay, you know, if we had some new feature that explained, you know, things better for e-commerce companies, did we see a change in activation rate for those e-commerce companies? And it's really important to drill mm. into that level of detail um, so you don't get lost in the noise of random fluctuations or sort of anything like that. Um, and that can apply to like, you know, maybe you're trying to, work on one specific step, you know, getting people that have installed your product to kind of like, well, they've used it once to use it multiple times, you know, like you really want to focus on like, who is that kind of targeted group rather than relying on these like kind of high level numbers. Um, because in anything but the largest products, like kind of, you know, global Facebook scale, um, it can be very, very hard to get significant results, um, on mm. these measures. And so really trying to look at hone in on your target group and say, can we move things for those for them? 
So you really have to tightly define who that is and tightly define the experiment in order to get any sort of validity out of the, the metrics that may result. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and that's where focusing on the customer problem becomes, you know, kind of important. We've talked so much about like the job mm. to be done and what do people want in the step mm. and having a clear hypothesis. But, you know, <laughs> on the ground, a lot of these things will look like we're going to redo the nav because the nav's confusing on our marketing site, you know, <laughs> and that will have impact. And like that could be the right answer. But really what you want to do is sort of have an understanding of like, ah, there's a particular sort of customer that finds like these two buttons kind of confusing or, 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 you know, they're looking for case studies, but we call them resources and they don't understand that case studies go into resources. And so we're going to rename resources <laughs> case studies. You know, like, I don't know what it is. Um, but then you would this want is to classic say, Steve Krug. You know, Steve Krug talks about when you identify a usability issue, you should be thinking about what's the smallest possible thing we can do to resolve that issue rather than redesign. Yeah, oh, absolutely, a thousand percent. Like a redesign should be the um, the sort of thing of last resort. But more generally, projects that are just like redesign um, is um, it's sort of inspecific because what you actually want to start with is like here are the problems. Um, that we mm. want to solve and really it's only when you get to design should you you know come to the conclusion and it should be pretty easy to agree like hey you know we actually can't solve this with our existing design we do need to like you know abstract up and kind of solve it at a at a sort of a higher level and at that point there should be mm. no arguments about the redesign it's when you're sort of pitching ah uh, you know our marketing site's just super broken um, like what's broken about it like what is what are people trying to find and what can't they find because be specific yeah because the specificity actually allows you to then evaluate the success of it right and it's sort of when you say mm. oh we're going to build better onboarding or make it shorter or sort of something like that um that's sort of like a vague solution without any real clear problem who's it for what's the progress they were trying to make and what's the problem with the status quo like if you've got those parts then it's quite easy to sort of or in many cases it's much easier to sort of define metrics for how you would see ah yes these sort of people are you know maybe it's like visitors from you know Visitors from Quora tended to have this problem. And so you can look at all your traffic being referred from Quora and say, like, hey, are they actually able to get to case studies at a much higher rate than they were previously? Like, you know, I don't know what this is, but it's like if you actually understand the kind of qualitative specifics, then kind of designing metrics that would quite easily allow you to see this stuff um, is, is, you know, sort of much, much easier rather than saying, well, we're mm. going to redesign the nav and try and see an increase in site-wide conversion because, like, they just it just doesn't happen. It's just so hard to measure that. Yeah, I mean, this sounds a lot like iteration as opposed to innovation. You know, is there a role at all for innovation in something like onboarding? Um, oh, look, absolutely. I think the way to think about it, um, there's a great, great, great blog post by Scott Belsky, who I think is or was the chief product officer at Adobe called The First Mile of Product. Um, that talks a lot mm -hmm. about these kind of pieces that I you know, highly recommend to um, your watchers or listeners or you know whatever they might be. But um, like a really good frame... You know, from sort of Scott was the idea that um, uh, sort of familiarity helps adoption um, and, you know, innovation, you know, is really great at kind of doing things in a new and different way. And so if you want to make people adopt something, make it familiar. And so I think in that mm. sense, like what, you know, onboarding should do is like bridge your new world and what people know. So it absolutely has to start at the like frames of reference and terms that, you know, the general population or whoever it is that's coming to your, you know, product understand and help them, you know, rather than using the sort of terms and definitions that sort of is, is unique to your product. Um, you know, as an example, at Intercom, um, we call 
um, like the way that uh, Salesforce and Intercom interact in an app, like an application. Now, most people think about that as an integration. Like integration is the word that kind of, do you have a HubSpot integration? Do you, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so on, in onboarding, like we had this whole you know debate about like, well, should we call them apps? Because that actually helps build a better mental model for how our product works. Or should we call them integrations? And, you know, essentially the question we asked ourselves was like, is it important? Like when someone's starting out with Intercom and is just really trying to like, you know, get a sense of like, will this give me value? Um, does explain to them that we actually, in fact, what you think's in, uh, in integration, <laughs> we call an app. Like, like our terms and definitions is not an important thing to land. Like we can land that further down the track, right? Once they've signed the deal, they've had yeah. the trial, we can go, oh, actually, if you're using this, by the way, integrations live in this kind of apps thing. Um, but I'd much rather have someone understand and be able to use, you know, our product rather than sort of, and be a little bit confused about like, you know, where to find integrations later on. Like that's a problem I'd much rather have than, you know, someone not become a yeah. customer. Um, yeah, that's kind of ca- catching and couching that ego of the wider organization before it's let loose <laughs> on, the, on the general public. Yeah, a thousand percent. It's 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 really about kind of meeting people where they are, and also remembering that. Mm. Um, and this is true of kind of products in general. Um, uh, I think innovation, for its own sake, um, is probably not helpful um, in general. Like, ideally, like a great product sort of works and is is sort of familiar to people and works in all the same ways that that you know, that they're sort of used to. Um, but because it's new, it, it it's got to in some way be different. Um, and so if, some, mm. if something's completely different, right, like if the if, if the Mac computer had a Dvorak keyboard that like layout that's supposed to be sort of more efficient or whatever, um, it wouldn't have taken off. I'm off because, you know, it's just one more thing that makes it hard to adopt. They don't want to like re- learn to reuse a keyboard, that kind of thing, even though like technically it might be a better product. Um, if you mm. go back and say like, what is it that, that makes a Mac different? Like typing speed is not it. Um, it's not central to that value prop and so they haven't done it. Um, and so I think... Mm. In general, whether it's onboarding or your product in general, um, those core things that you do different and you know that you do better, um, make them different if you can be, and then make everything else as standard and familiar as you possibly can, um, because it mm-hmm. just reduces the amount of kind of barriers to you know, new people understanding um, your product. You know, like use standard UI, like like, like don't innovate yeah. and, and that kind of stuff, unless yeah. you have to for some reason, right? Like. Um, mm. Yeah, Google doesn't, you know, muck around very often with how they present the core search results, and that's for for a reason. Um, I was just doing an evaluation of a website recently, and search was part of that, the search feature, and the design team had done something quite different to what people are used to. And one user just didn't even re- realize that what they were seeing was the results that had been returned from their search input. Oh wow. And you know, and I mean that. Like to most people, you might think that's crazy, but for this for this person, it was real. They they had to think really think about it, and then eventually they got it. But it was just unnecessary friction. Yeah. You know, something else that you spoke about, Robbie, that I thought was really interesting when I was preparing for today's talk was that there's um, this notion that there are jobs that are outside of the core job of the product that your users are trying to achieve, and that if you pay attention to those, you can unlock a lot of mutual value. And this is in the context of onboarding. What can you tell me about that? Yes, the idea of jobs that are not central to your product is the fact that um, a lot of 
products will describe them. Or if, if you actually look at the way that people use products, most products are actually a pretty limited sort of solution to the problem. Uh, and there'll be one tiny piece of workflow. Hmm. So you think of SurveyMonkey, which is a pretty fully featured survey product. It's actually a pretty small part of the actual process of gaining insight over something. So let's say you wanted to sort of send a survey to someone or you know you wanted to understand something about your customers and you decided that a survey was the option there. Um, you've got to figure out you've got to figure out who to send it to, you've got to figure out who's going to use those results, you've got to figure out what information you want to um, learn from those people, you've got to figure out like which questions you should ask in order to you know get those results, you've got to figure out who to send it to, mm. you've got to get the email addresses, like survey doesn't help with any of that stuff. You know, it's just, a, it, it, it will allow you to like, yes, you can build questions and you can send it to people and they will collect the results and it will put them in charts for you. But even then, like from the charts, often that goes, then you've got to kind of take the input, you've got to synthesize it, make sense of it. You've got to distribute it and share it with people. There's all this sort of stuff that's adjacent to it. Um, hmm. You've got to remind people to take the survey that they sort of haven't responded quite yet. Like this is all this stuff that will actually be part of the sort of regular workflow, um, which, um, yeah, your product often you know, today doesn't really sort of solve. And so thinking about as you're trying to move people to adopt it, um, helping people helping people do that is often really important. So, you know, templates are like a really common kind of answer to this sort of problem. Like typically most things like allow you to do something, most products allow you to do something, but you've, you've got to mm. put something. There'll be some kind of enter some text or create something and send it to someone type thing. And so like, helping giving people ideas of like, well, here's what you might want to write and here's who you might like to send it to you. And by the way, here's, you know, where you can get that information from. Um, as a super practical example, um, Intercom, um, you know, uh, sort of where I work, if people aren't familiar with it, it's a, most people know it as that little chat bubble that sits in the, um, you know, bottom right corner of websites on the internet. And really we view that mm -hmm. as a way to, you know, for businesses to talk to their customers for sales, marketing, support. Um, all the ways you can talk to your customers, um, one of the things you know that'll happen is like, how does your customer's information wind up in there? Because from the very start, we've had this um, you know kind of chat, um, you know, bubble which exists uh, as a JavaScript snippet on your website. Um, but most people don't install it like at the very beginning of their business, and so people will have some existing customers who aren't in Intercom, and and you know the only way to get those people in was to sort of somehow force them to visit your website and then capture information and you can message them. And so one of the you know best things we ever did for onboarding was you know provide a CSV upload button where you could upload a list of existing kind of users and we'd dedupe it um, against people that we've already seen and so you could actually have a comprehensive user list. Um, you know, like this is an example of something that's sort of outside the product that's, you know, and it's easy to sort of overlook and think, well, you know, do we need to add this feature or that feature? But in actual fact, it was just this really basic problem is, you know, we say we're one place to see all your users, but like, you know, um, our customers couldn't get all the users into Intercom. Um, and so mm. like, that's an example of the sort of thing that's about understanding like what's outside the product and how do we help people, um, you know, overcome those gaps, which can seem, you know, pretty pedestrian, but often, uh, you know, mm -hmm. really, really important to overcome. And that's not something that I get the sense that your product analytics would, would tell you. Well, no, I mean, this is a thing like, this is goes back to our like quant qual, um, discussion, right? So product analytics tell you what people do. Um, and they're really good at that, but it doesn't tell you why people do a particular thing. And both mm. those things are really important. Just knowing that there's some people that want to do a certain thing, all these jobs to be done, 
it's kind of helpful, but you, you know, you may not know how many people have that particular job or whatever else, um, mm-hmm. or even equally interviewing people and trying to understand like which part of the product they got stuck on may not be particularly reliable. Um, analytics are really good at telling you like who's seen what screen, um, but they just really won't tell you why they didn't go any further or what happened at that point or what was confusing to them about that screen. Um, well, what it, they're doing in other products and trying to make, well, exactly. it, make uh, what, whatever they're trying to do work on your product. It's outside of the bounds of, the, of that analytics. Yeah, completely. And if you're just looking at product analytics, you often end up in guessing land, right? Of like you'll get in a room and go like, well, you know, why not be, why might people not be kind of completing this form? And the answer is always just change something in the product. Let's redesign the page, you know? Um, and it's like, I don't know, redesign the page. It's like sort of throwing all the Lego bricks up and just like putting them in a different place. Like, um, you know, like how do you redesign it? I don't know. Like just anything that's not what it is right now would be a redesign. And it like may or may not work. You just happen to luck mm-hmm. on the thing that was confusing. Whereas if actually go and talk to customers and they go, ah, people were really confused uh, because they wanted to select a certain thing in this dropdown and they couldn't find it or people couldn't find mm-hmm. this button or like whatever it is. If you have really specific feedback for like, what should this redesign achieve today? What happens is people conflate these two ideas and a really successful redesign would help people see this and, and you know, that these things are two separate ideas, you know, like, and, and, and the points they miss or like, you know, the understanding they're missing is, is, you know, ABC that like, again, back mm-hmm. to real specificity of like, what is it that people mm-hmm. find is confusing versus like, let's remove friction, right? Like what is frictionful? Let's get mm-hmm. very specific and not just imagine it, but like talk to customers and understand to them what was hard here. Um, Robbie, this all sounds like wrong. a lot of hard work. <laughs> it is. Um, I mean, it's yeah, so much it really easier is. just to, just to jump, jump to conclusions and, and, and do things right and, and learn in production. Like how do yeah. you help people to operate and adopt this mindset? Yeah. I mean, it, it's actually much harder to work, harder work to learn in product because you've actually got to put fingers on keyboards and build something and, mm. um, you know, people use it and then it's like, oh, no one uses it. Like it's a super expensive way to learn versus actually talking to your customers and saying, well, you know, you know to use our, our onboarding example, you know, talking to a few of them and saying, well, if I explain X, Y, and Z, does that help you? They're like, oh yeah, great. I'm ready to move to the next step. Okay, cool. You have now have like really high confidence that if you built, you know, the product thing or the screens that did, you know, whatever I just explained, um, then that will work versus like going, oh, people, you know, don't move from screen A to screen B. Um, let's imagine, you know, what could the problem be? Whiteboard, bunch of ideas. That sounds fun. Build a thing, ship it. Oh, it hasn't, you know, like we've moved people one screen further, but now they drop off at the next screen. Um, we haven't achieved much at all, you know? And, and so that's why mm. like talking to customers is like, can be a pain, but it's like the cheapest way to learn rather than actually building stuff. Um, mm. you know, the, if you're trying to find out what problem to solve, you have to talk to your customers. If you want to evaluate whether the solution works, then you've got to either like design it or build it, you know? And so like, mm-hmm. it's important to figure out like, are we trying to, you know, do we know, excuse me, do we know why people aren't activating or why they're churning? Um, and if we don't do that, you've got to talk to people. If we know that, um, and we're just trying to say, well, you know, how do we, um, you know, integrate with sales also that large customers don't churn, um, and you've talked to you know them to understand like you know what they want out of Salesforce integration or what it is they're trying to achieve, um, you know then at some point you have to build that thing to like understand does it actually do what I thought it would, um, 
but that's sort of further down the track and you already should be have like a fair amount of confidence that this problem is worth solving. Hmm. You know, this reminds me of my chat a couple of weeks ago with Marty Kagan and he told me this story about Mark Andreessen when he was working for him at Netscape. Mm-hmm. He um, considers Mark Andreessen to be one of the, well, the, the smartest person he's ever worked for. And he said that the, um, the penny dropped for him when Mark said to him, you've got to know in product what you can't know. And I think that is exactly what you've just described there. And you've got to decide uh, what to do when you realize that you, you don't know something and how to respond. Now, Robbie, I'm just mindful of time. I would love to have spoken to you today about growth and measuring growth, but instead, are you up for a few scenario-based questions out there that may be useful for people in product that are experiencing a relevant situation? Let's do it. All right. Excellent. The first scenario is... You're a rising star in your company, and this has given you a sense of self-confidence and some quite strong opinions. Others don't always share your opinion, and you've noticed that you've started to experience difficulty achieving the outcomes that you want. What do you do? That's a really good one. That's a very real one. Um, I think the trick there is just spending, spending some time on relationship. So, you know, really diagnose like why you aren't um, achieving those outcomes. And most likely if it's products, because like you're not getting people to sort of, you know, buy into your ideas or come along with that. And um, mm-hmm. if you're fairly um, convinced that you have the sort of right answer um, and you've done the work, it's probably about the non doing the work stuff. And it's actually much more about the relationship you have with people. And so I think a few casual coffees, um, seeing how you can help others of understanding where they're coming from, um, you know, most likely, if you know if you're in this place, you'll find oh, I actually haven't spoken to many people without asking them for something for quite a while, um, mm. and so I think I'd be really trying to you know think about the relationship and sort of understand where people um, were, like did they truly believe in the stuff that I was doing, and you know how could I help them, um, you know with mm. what they were concerned about, I think would be would be pretty important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and does sound pretty important. Are you ready for another? Yeah. All right, number two, here we go. You've just been promoted to look after onboarding for your company's flagship product. You're a competent product manager, but it's your first time working in this area. What do you need to do or understand before you change anything? Oh, what will happen here? I've been through this and I've seen this a few times. Uh, The sort of theoretical answer is you need to understand your customers better. And so you want to, um, ideally, you do like a bunch of research to understand, you know, do a bunch of switch script interviews, like I talked about, trying to understand the progress that mm-hmm. people are trying to make through the onboarding process. Almost certainly that won't be available. You'll be in a new product area. Um, you know, <laughs> you haven't got a lot of credibility. There's no sort of research resource available. And so that's where what I'd do is I'd work with the team and be trying to really scrap, try and be really scrappy. And so I'd recruit mm-hmm. design, I'd recruit um, engineering, I get the whole team on board about like, let's really understand what's going on here so that we don't, um, sort of ship stuff that no one uses, um, and go mm-hmm. do your own, um, interviews. And, you know, maybe it's not as comprehensive as possible. Um, maybe you can get some research support. Um, but, um, yeah, just try and just talk to a few customers and, and it actually almost doesn't need to be that sophisticated and you'll start to sort of hear some common themes about like what's frustrating the payment process or like installations kind of hard, um, and really try and 
refine that yourselves. And even if you're making it up, um, being very explicit about what you assume is wrong. And, and so again, like we think that NAV is broken. It's like, well, what do you think is broken about the NAV? And then just, even if it's just a hypothesis that's not validated, at least, you know, note it down and write it down and then build and ship some mm-hmm. stuff, build a little bit of credibility. Um, and then, you know, once you've got a few wins on the board, you'll kind of be able to say, because in the early days, like often the onboarding stuff's like super obvious. It's, you know, there'll be huge things that, you know, you could read online reviews or like reviews in the app store or talk to just a couple of random mm-hmm. customers you can harangue and they'll be all be like, oh, the pricing's confusing or, you know, I don't really want to install or like you don't actually, you know, just read basic interviewing, you know, basic switch script interviewing on the internet and, you know, you'll make a ton of progress pretty quickly. And so, yeah, it's important to understand your customers. You probably won't get the resource to do that initially. And so just doing a kind of a, your own job and, and, and trying to prove some progress, well then, you know, you'll make some progress, ship some cool stuff, and then you can kind of get by and just say, hey, look, this was great, but we just did, did these interviews ourselves. And like, here's the three areas that we're still not really sure. And so, you know, mm-hmm. we'd love further investment to kind of get some really research to go deep here. And then that's gonna be much more compelling versus going like, hey, I can't do my job until I've done tons and tons and tons of research. Um, you know, the most stuff actually isn't that complicated and it tends to be pretty clear pretty quickly. And so just talking to a few customers, um, five, 10, honestly, is, is, is plenty, as long as they're the right people. Um, mm. You know, write your own SQL, dig them out, send them emails from your own, from your own email address, honestly, that's fine. Um, you'll start to sort of understand some patterns. Yeah, so it sounds like get scrappy and also get out of the building, whether that's virtually or physically. Thousand percent get out of the building. All the answers are outside the building. <laughs> are you ready for the final one? Yeah, what you got? All right. Since you took over managing the onboarding products, you've come up against several different and competing agendas from sales, marketing, and other product teams as to what that experience should be like. How do you align those agendas? Yeah, this is also not uncommon. So I think there's a couple of bits here. So one part is that the often the agendas will be like, you should build X, you know, and with those, I'd really try and push the conversation back to like, what do you think the problem we should solve is? Um, you will never get a straight answer to that because normal people aren't trained to think in problems. But basically, I'd sort of sit down and work with them and I'd say, oh, you know, we think we need notifications and just sort of test them. Okay, cool. Like, why do you think that? Or like, how would that help? Or what is it that isn't working today that notifications would solve? And if you, if you really mm-hmm. sort of sit with people and understand them, that for a start is just going to build like a ton of rapport and, and people feeling heard is actually like probably half the battle in the product development process. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly internally just making people feel heard. Um, Even if you don't do what they then recommended, they'll at least go, yeah, like at least you sort of understood what I was talking about. Um, So the first bit is, yeah, trying to get to the problems, you know, that the different kind of groups think are out there and, and how they've come to that, you know, like, is that a, I think it'd be cool if, or like I have three customers that, tell this to me and actually if you'd like to talk to them i'd be glad to refer you like that's what you want to hear what you don't want to hear is i'm pretty sure we're losing deals because of x but like i can't really point to any specific one but it's kind of the vibe what you're looking for is oh yeah like here's three customers i could tell you off the top of my head and you know i'd I'd be glad to sort of intrigue you to them um so get to the problems you know the underlying problems and see if there's sort of similarities there and then you know like ultimately it's a job of trying to like align priorities around this so hopefully 
you know, you could kind of work with leadership and this is, you know, like literally the role of like product directors is to kind of do this uh, alignment at the sort of functional level around like, well, mm-hmm. is sales or like, what's the priority? Like winning more deals or reducing our support costs? Or is it, you know, as a company, is it really important that we have the slickest experience or the fastest, you know, like, like, like what is the kind of product direction from the company level? And then within that, mm-hmm. you'll be able to say like, here's how we think we can help. You know, like we're primarily a sales sold company. And so we think that the job of onboarding is really to do a great job of, you know, the demo and that the, once you've actually bought that experience could be a, a little bit janky, but there'll be a support you know, manager with you anyway. And like, you're pretty bored into the company by that point. And so we're not going to get a lot of mm-hmm. um, extra points for having that be really slick, but you know, we will, if we can kind of help people tip online pretty well, or, you know, just as an example, or it's like, look, you know, actually a sales team don't want people in the product. They want to be, you know, they're really focused on very large enterprise deals that are sold outbound. And so we're totally focused on helping self serve company, you know, uh, kind of customers mm-hmm. um, or, you know, like as an example from Intercom, I had a, like a really close relationship with our support team, but, and they were always eager to you know, have me do things that would uh, reduce support ticket load, but just relative to other stuff that was happening, it just, you know, was hard to make an impact. Like we were a very revenue focused team. And so if you look at the kind of almost like the cost saving of sort of support, like it just didn't really sort of stack up. And so it was on that basis that I was able to say to them, look, um, I'd love to help. And I think it's important and we'll do it when we sort of can like if there's other stuff we're doing that we can slip this in for almost no cost we'll absolutely help you out mm-hmm. um but we can both agree that our you know job is revenue here and like you know here's the bucket of money i see with your problem and here's a bucket of money i see somewhere else and we could probably both agree that i shouldn't work on you know your problem even though like i know it's important to you and so that kind of goes back to the like you know building understanding um and, and a sort of mm-hmm. a common sort of being the chair of the decision making committee around prioritization rather than saying like just you know computer says no Mm. it sounds like a yes and type approach yeah i mean it's validating because i think the thing is like um everyone likes being creative everyone wants to be innovative everyone likes building stuff and often these ideas are good like it's very rare that i've had people come with like blatantly stupid stuff um often it might be a really misguided solution to a problem that's pretty real or it might be mm-hmm. something that's like a really interesting idea, but just not a priority right now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, or it's like pretty far off our target customer, but there is someone for whom it could be useful. Like, there's always some kernel of kind of truth in this. And so really trying to acknowledge that with people, you know, like, hey, this is a, it sounds like a really neat idea. Um, we're not actually focused on, you know, intercom for dogs right now, but, you know, if, if we were selling to canines, like that makes a lot of sense to, you know, translate the whole thing into wolves or send people dog biscuits. So you, you know what I mean? Like it, everything sort of makes sense <laughs> in some context. Um, you know, saying you're a massive idiot, don't you understand our target segment? Like that's not going to be any friends. Um, and so, yeah, I think product is shiny and people want to have an impact. And so just validating what people have said and how hey, I understand it, I see where you're going. Um, and maybe mm-hmm. even giving, giving some light feedback of like, to be honest, like those people aren't our target customer and that's not me. Like, you know, from the company level, you can see that. If, or if you ask, your boss or the head of sales, they will also say that that's not a priority or, or you know, whatever else. Um, but, you know, interesting, fun innovation thing. And when we, if we have a little wiggle week or a hackathon, maybe we could work on that. Like that can be a kind of solution to that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it really sounds like having a really clear product strategy is incredibly important in making those conversations much more productive and much easier. Yeah, it's just a it's just a chain of logic from like here's who we're selling to, here's what we think is important for them, and so therefore, pretty obviously, like it's important that we make and build these sort of things, and you know yeah. that does or doesn't fit into that ultimately.
That's your consultant coming out loud and strong there, Robbie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of consulting, but ultimately it's just about, you know, just making decisions within a business. Um, mm. and, and, and it's, uh, it's a yeah qualitative understanding of how you have impact for, um, you know, for your customers. So, yeah. So what should a product manager never do? What should a product manager never do? Um, definitely never put your business card on the table and go like, I'm a product manager, therefore I know X. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like, I, I always hate that term product sense. Like I, I just don't, you know, you may have experience with a particular customer and their types of problems, but I think you just look at a website and go, oh, you can make it better in this way. Like maybe, but that's just sort of like trying to be like a UX expert or like, hey, this is more conventional or like often you'll find that people do this or that. That's just sort of some weird sort of experience. Um, I think mm. that, yeah, ultimately it's about like, hey, here's the information I have or here's the assumptions I'm making about our particular customers and I believe it, you know, my evidence base for it is all these conversations I've had or, you know, here's the thing that you assert is a problem that never once has come up or I've never heard of before. And if I search our support tickets, I can never find it being there. Like maybe it's a problem, but like usually it'll show up somewhere, you know, or some competitor mm. will have done something, you know, that speaks to that sort of problem existing. So, um, yeah, just trying to put your business card on the table is, is certainly a thing you should never do. Um, I did the other one is just like building anything that is like based on a, um, a judgment word. XYZ is broken, XYZ needs to be redesigned, XYZ is bad, uh, XYZ is confusing. Like don't, mm -hmm. you know, like like just don't sort of start projects based on that or on solutions. Always start with like, here's the progress our customers are trying to make and here's what's wrong about the status quo. Um, and if you can't answer that, like you, you, you just don't know enough to get started because, um, you know, your design team is going to try and design some solution and it's going to be different in some way. And if it's not different in the way that, solves whatever it is the actual problem is then you're just kind of rearranging the different puzzle pieces which is uh, a very expensive way to waste time this is a great point to bring us down to my final question for you today robbie which is thinking about where product management is today what's your greatest hope for the profession over the coming years so i think getting better at um aligning whole companies around jobs to be done, I think. Um, so, you know, I mean, product management itself needs to do like, a, I think a much better job of really clearly articulating the problem to be solved to empower the design team to do, good, do a good job and bring engineering um, along with that. But also this is as applicable to sales and to marketing. And so I think in the future, what we'll see is this sort of idea of like the jobs and the progress we're trying to make will actually be kind of, um, aligned throughout the organization. So our marketing side will speak to those sort of problems. Our sales team will be speaking about those problems and those scripts. And everyone will be mm. kind of iterating and trying to update. And if they find, you know, if the sales team finds there's, you know, a different pitch that resonates, then, you know, we should surface that back to marketing, back to product. Say, hey, I think we're now selling someone slightly different. And so maybe we need features to deal with that or, you know, kind of collateral to support that. But kind of viewing the whole organization as um, an entity to sort of understand and solve um, you know, sort of problems. I think elevating that to the sort of exec level um, will certainly be something that we, I hope, is something that we see more of in the future. Yeah, makes sense. Robbie, thank you. This has been such a great conversation packed with 
awesome stories and some really practical insights. Thank you for so generously sharing your knowledge and your experiences today. This was a blast. Thanks so much, Brendan. Look, I've got no doubt, Robbie, that people that have listened today will get a lot of value, especially product managers from what you've shared. If people are interested in learning more about you and following your career and what you're up to, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Robbie Digi, um, or and a bunch of my writing is on the Intercom blog. If you sort of go to the Intercom blog and search by author, you can check some of the stuff I've written there about um, jobs we've done, about problem statements, about onboarding, about a bunch of growth work, churn, you know, better retention messaging, some stuff like that. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Great. Thanks, Robbie. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that we didn't get to today, so we'll have to do a round two at some point. To everyone that's listening, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that I've covered with Robbie today will be in the show notes, including where you can find him and also all the resources that we've touched on. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this from world-class leaders in UX, product, and design, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, keep being brave.